What's good? Jesse here. You're listening to The Epoch of Incredulity, Season 4, Episode 127, recorded on January 16th, 2024, featuring commentary from comrades Joe, Fava, and myself. I had to trim about an hour from this one and split it into two parts, so in this first half, we uncover the neoliberal rot undergirding the recent Boeing 737 MAX 9 incident, and dive into the deepening quagmire in West Asia, from the success of the Red Sea blockade and stymieing Western war profiteering, to the Pentagon-brained bombing campaign in response on Ansar Allah, to the Mossad-backed oil pirates vaporized in Kurdistan, to the tragedy unfolding among settler society. The economists in this way serve as the new priests, right? They are what the priests were to to monarchies, the the modern-day neoclassical economist is to um, capitalism. Whatever. It's. I mean, it's not over. It's there's going to be some other thing. If it's not direct combat, it's going to be some other bullshit. And look, Ukraine still isn't a, a NATO member, so nope, that was, that was kind happen. of the what the deal yeah. hinged on. And uh, surprise, surprise, can't trust the United States. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is kind of funny having to watch Zelensky like go to Switzerland and like beg everyone to give him more money, and he's like complaining that no one's giving him any attention anymore. And the money is gone elsewhere because. Our crown jewel of the empire is more a priority to us. Now the adrenaline is worn off and he realizes he has to actually pay the United States back. And the IMF and the World Bank. He better start selling those Girl Scout cookies. Yeah, he better have a fucking big lemonade stand. (laughs) (laughs) It's like he owes like 45 to 50 billion dollars just to the IMF which is equivalent to a sizable chunk of his country's GDP. Well, I wouldn't say he personally owes the IMF. Well, I mean, he, he's, he's regime. He's going to have to pull in more foreign investment. Well, it certainly helps that he's privatized most of it. I was looking at that graph. Look at this graph! This is like unrelated, but also semi-related. China's real estate versus industrial sector, and like yeah, I saw, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot. Like right, right when the Evergreen scandal broke, and she was like, "You know what? I think houses are going to be for living in instead of bullshit speculation." <laughs> like, yeah, the real estate market disappeared entirely, and homelessness basically dropped to nothing. Yeah, it's it's essentially eradicated. Except I'm sure there's. Plenty of people in like, oh my God, one of my clients was fucking unbelievably self-righteous about peasantry in China, implying that if you are a peasant, you are irrevocably poor and destitute. But it's just like a designation of what kind of work you do and in what part of the country. If you live in the boons. You're in the boons. And you farm like you're a peasant. You know what I mean? There wasn't a proletariat in China. There was no industrial proletariat. Because everybody lived on a farm. So everybody that isn't living like in one of the many big cities in China is essentially a a peasant. But they're not like starving to death anymore. No, it's just like a classification for economic purposes. 
think a shortcut to understanding this is that peasants basically don't participate in market socialism. They generally reject the collectivization and industrialization programs that have made food production and distribution much more efficient in the country overall. This is a challenge for the CPC because, in order to expand public services like free education and free healthcare throughout the entire countryside, they have to divert funds from programs that are mutually beneficial between the state and its people, or mutually profitable between the state and the private sector. The particular dialectic between collective and independent farming was really drilled into the fabric of Chinese society during the early period of Dengist revisionism. Yeah, there's like this girl on YouTube who forages for food and cooks it, and it's great. She's like a peasant farmer. Not to mention, the essence of the sickle and hammer is the solidarity between the proletariat and the peasantry. So, yeah. It's not like being a peasant even indicates anything about your class under Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, Ho Chi Minh thought. You just become one of the people entitled to. Having your basic needs met. Yes, exactly. Is there like a general term for the, the what is the 49 revolution called? It's uh, the revolution. That's not, that's. Well, the, the revolution of 1949. Ah. Between the, right, the uh, first revolution and the cultural revolution, the communist party instituted a policy of the, essentially judgments were handed down to anybody who was deemed by the surrounding community to be like an exploiter, which ended up kind of... It got interesting. ...became a means by which people could then exploit during the Cultural Revolution. But prior to that, they were put into uh, worker cooperatives to do like agriculture. It's definitely not the worst. And they weren't even forced to give up their... Like that was kind of a criticism of the Chinese Communist Party of itself. We didn't go hard enough. Despite reforming capitalists through cooperative labor as part of the working class, they didn't seize the capital itself that was still accruing interest. So, I mean, they were still making a passive income despite cosplaying as, as working class people. We got to be peasants for five minutes. No, it was longer than that. Well, so I, that, was, I was making a joke out of that. That part was mandatory, but the ideological, the explicitly Marxist education was up to the worker, whether or not they wanted to study. Because it's like, if you can't, if, if you're unwilling to be reformed... You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink out of it. Exactly. Unlike the American prison system, they're not claiming necessarily to be reforming through confinement. Like the reform comes in the process of humanizing yourself attaining humility through like communal living in the same way that I think it's changed my life to do mutual aid with people on the ground. To properly flesh out my point, there's no substitute for practical egalitarian and collective action. The concept that workers, queer and trans people, people of color, unhoused, disabled, and colonized people are, in the words of Michael Brooks, on team human does not actually connect those people, does not connect us to each other. Our imagination and understanding will similarly be limited by our lack of experience in the material world. Only by working with other members of Team Human can we understand what it actually is. But there are some people who just fucking hate Marxism and they're never gonna learn it. 
So anyway, I don't know how much of this shit I'm even going to keep in. Here's like the official part of the episode that I wanted to just like start off with a bang. Like January 5th, 2024 at 5.12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time while traveling at a speed of 385 knots. That's 443 miles per hour. And at an elevation of approximately 16,000 feet, 4,877 meters, Alaska Airlines Flight 1282 was rocked by an explosive decompression event. The flight was quickly diverted from its intended destination in Ontario, Canada, back to its origin at Portland International Airport in Oregon, where it landed safely at 527 PST. None of the 177 occupants on board perished, though three were injured, and most, if not all, were traumatized, including a boy seated in row 25 who had his shirt ripped clean off of his body. The blowout occurred just six minutes after takeoff as a mid-cabin plug door was ripped from the airframe. Didn't they find it like seven miles away? Uh, away from what? Away from the airport. Yeah, it was pretty close. The flight data recorder indicates that cabin pressure dropped from 97.1 kilopascals, which is about the equivalent of atmospheric pressure in Gardner, Massachusetts, to 62.6 kilopascals, which is the equivalent to that on Granite Peak in Montana in less than one second. Passengers' personal belongings, as well as parts of their seats, were sucked through the gaping hole in the fuselage where the door plug and its corresponding panel had just been. The plane in question was a Boeing 737 MAX 9. As of this recording, the FAA is investigating Boeing for noncompliance with inspection and testing regulations. And this isn't an engineering podcast, so we're going to look at the systemic failures or successes, depending on your class, that incentivize <laughs> Boeing to produce fucked up planes. If you want engineering, well, there's your prop of is probably a better one for you. Can we have some background music here? Why don't you just do it? Can you just do it? Okay. <clears throat> a story of American superiority reiterated across the media landscape attributes its inherently self-sufficient industrial sector, characterized by a world-class domestic labor force. Unless workers ask for wage increases, of course. Operational efficiency, innovation, and product quality all honed to perfection by robust competition among a diverse array of corn-fed, bootstrap-pulling, and most importantly, private corporations. And I suspect that (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) Do you want me to keep going? Yeah. Okay. If the if the greatest beneficiary (laughs) (laughs) fucking A. I don't know if I could. You might have to add some actual. Yeah, I will. I'll okay. use some some Kevin McLeod or something. Use some like that. Kevin McLeod, yeah. That'd be better. Comrade forever, as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah. Thank you for your creative comments. Anyhow, I suspect that if the greatest beneficiaries of capitalism were true believers of this story and conducted business as such, they would not be where they are. 
and I'm going to lay out some evidence for you. Boeing survives through outrageous subsidies, grants, and bailouts. Since the year 2000, Boeing and its subsidiaries have received over $71 billion in loans, loan guarantees, and bailout assistance just from the federal government. How much of that came during COVID? Um, I don't... <laughs> during the specifically the bailout? Yeah. I can look it up. To answer your question succinctly, what? a lot of the money has been during COVID, which is a period of time after which the, I think it was like the European Union and the... Yeah, it was like the EU was suing Boeing on behalf of Airbus because Airbus was pissed. They were getting all of this, like, basically free money. Yeah. And I'll get in. I'll, I'll continue. Washington State alone has granted Boeing over $13 billion in tax credits. State of Washington had to, like, agree to end its sweetheart deals with Boeing. But they didn't. They kept giving Boeing tax breaks. Last year, that's 2023, St. Louis County, Missouri, made a $1.8 billion capital investment for Boeing's expansion project. That's just one example. On top of the tax breaks. That's like equivalent to like half of the Boston Police Department's overtime fund. I was going to burp, but it didn't happen. (laughs) Half in the chat. Maybe it'll happen later. (laughs) At least expect it. Furthermore, Boeing planes are assembled with parts sourced from supply chains all over the world, utilizing foreign labor throughout. In China, for instance, Boeing shares a completion center with Comac, which is China's state-owned commercial aviation company, for interior installations and livery painting, specifically for the 737 aircraft line. Further still, the American company that manufactures the fuselage and door plug for Boeing's 737 MAX 9, a company by the name of Spirit Aerosystems of Wichita, Kansas, and upon which Boeing initially cast blame, is actually a branch of Boeing itself that incorporated as a separate entity in 2005. So Boeing is blaming a different subsidiary of Boeing. For Boeing failures. It's technically not a subsidiary because only like 90% of their revenue comes from Boeing or something like that. But it's like saying that Nesson, the broadcast network that broadcasts Red Sox games, 80% of which is owned by the Red Sox parent company, isn't technically a subsidiary of the Red Sox. Oh, it's only 80% stake. Spirit Aerosystems is literally the only company that manufactures these things for Boeing. They, they can't build a 737 without them. Here's some juicy shit I left out when we were recording. In 2021, the U.S. Department of Transportation, led by Pete Shape of Our Democracy Buttigieg, shelled out a cool $75 million to Spirit Aerosystems in what was by far the most generous public contribution awarded through the Aviation Manufacturing Jobs Protection Program. The details of Boeing's bailout are much murkier given they asked for $60 billion in federal assistance and then made a spectacle of refusing to take it because there were strings attached. In truth, they still received billions, but the exact amount is unclear. Boeing has since continued to receive federal assistance, of which the grants awarded transparently also amount to billions of dollars. 
As for the door plug debacle, it has become quite clear that the uncontrolled depressurization event of January 5th is barely the tip of the iceberg. Spirit's current CEO, Patrick Shanahan, happens to be a former Boeing company exec and the former U.S. Secretary of Defense. Shanahan began working with Boeing in 1986 and would spend over 30 years in various managerial roles at the company, including, but not limited to, leadership of the 767 program and fabrication division, vice president and general manager of the 757 program, overseeing design, production, and profitability, vice president and general manager for rotorcraft systems, overseeing the Osprey, Chinook, and Apache programs, vice president and general manager of Boeing missile defense systems, which encompassed ground-based and airborne defense as well as tactical laser programs, senior vice president of airplane programs, overseeing management of profit and loss for the 737, 747, 767, 777, and 787 programs, and bearing responsibility for the operations of engineering, delivery, and regulatory compliance at Boeing's principal manufacturing sites, senior vice president of supply chain and operations, head of the Environment, Health, and Safety Organization, as well as the Intellectual Property Management Organization, and a seat at the Boeing Executive Council. Shanahan ostensibly left the private sector in 2017 to serve as Deputy Secretary of Defense under Trump and was serendipitously promoted to Acting Defense Secretary on New Year's Day 2019. A couple months later, it was reported that he was under investigation by the Inspector General for allegedly violating ethics rules by propping the Boeing company up and disparaging Lockheed Martin. He suddenly withdrew from the official Defense Secretary confirmation process in June of that year under a guise of spending more time with his family. Of course, he returned to the private sector and, in October 2023, was appointed the CEO position at Spirit Aerosystems. On December 13th, before the door blowout, keep in mind, Spirit shareholders filed a 105-page amended complaint in a class action lawsuit against the company and I'm just going to read some of the section headings from the table of contents. Former Spirit employees confirmed that Spirit knew of pervasive quality problems, including the misdrilled holes defect. Defendants knew of, but concealed, material facts regarding Spirit's quality failures. Materially false and misleading statements issued during the class period. The truth emerges, causing substantial declines in Spirit's stock price, while defendants continue to mislead investors. Post-class period events further confirm sustained, widespread quality problems at Spirit. And obviously, things haven't improved for Spirit in the last month, as former employees spill more tea. And one last thing that cannot in good conscience go unmentioned. The day after we recorded this episode, news broke that Secretary of State Antony Blinken was temporarily stranded at Davos because the modified Boeing 737 he had been on suffered a critical oxygen leak and was deemed not to be airworthy. I refuse to even comment on that. It's a cosmic masterpiece and I don't want to fuck it up. I mean, we've talked about problems with the 737 MAX before on this podcast, and the level-headed response would be, why the fuck do they make this plane? Why are they still <laughs> making this plane? And the answer is because they have a backlog of like 6,500 planes they need to fulfill deliveries for. 
even though these planes are like really bad, constantly crashing or having some other major mishap. I think they're still grounded. At least in the U.S. they are. Uh, yeah, until sufficient inspections can be done of all of them. I was going to look at the backlog, but I realized there's a quick link to the Boeing 737 MAX groundings. Wow, this is <laughs> it's a really long list. <laughs> uh, okay, so 171 affected aircraft are grounded. The FAA issued an emergency airworthiness directive. As of September 30th, 2023, Boeing has delivered on 1,420 of the 6,203 orders it has on the books. However, there are some orders from like, quote unquote, unidentified customers. If you can't identify the customer, how do you even know if they have the plane? It's a good, smart question to think about in your smart brain. But yeah, I mean, this is clearly reflected in Boeing stocks. We were talking about this a little bit because, like, Boeing can get a bailout for anything. If, like, the problem is directly that company leadership just wants to have a bigger salary and they fuck everybody over that's working there, pay themselves a lot more and get, like, bigger dividends for shareholders and then have to lay people off, they will ask for a bailout because they did that. And they will get the bailout. (laughs) So it it almost seems like there's nothing that Boeing can do to fail, but I think there will reach a point where the government's going to get sick of paying for their ass if they're not, like, making any money. But I don't know. That might be, like, an optimistic outlook. What do you think, Joe? I think eventually the government's going to be like, guys, how many times, how many times have you guys fucked up and, like, asked for free money? How many times before we actually have to, like, hit you guys with some fines? And Boeing's gonna be like, a lot. And the government's gonna be like, well, that sucks. Here's some more free money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But which is totally in line with neoliberalism. Not only, like, the illusion of a self-sufficient private sector, but, like... Bending over backwards to, like, bail them out anytime they fuck up. Yeah, like the government spending all of the money that it could be spending on actually like having people's fundamental needs met on like a bailout that will only temporarily make the line go up a little bit. Because it clearly doesn't have any impact on company practices. We made the line go up for about two and a half months at the cost of only like $5 billion. It's like a morale booster or something. <laughs> morale is low. Here's a loan. Investor morale is low. <laughs> We'd just like to thank Ron and Nikki for just having a good time. We don't even know who came in second. <laughs> I gotta say, I do think it's looking at like the discrepancies and who received their Boeing orders and who didn't. Are they pre-orders? Is that what it is? Do they have to pay up front? I'm assuming they pay up front or something like half now, like half when you actually like give us the plane. It's closer to the latter. Down payments don't necessarily reflect order sizes because the speed of production is more or less fixed. Thus, payments are staged over the course of production, and the final payment for each aircraft is contingent upon it being delivered and passing inspection. Financial stability of the receiving airline obviously factors into the negotiation of upfront costs as well. Not very interesting, but perhaps provides more insight into which orders are going to take priority. 
at the very least, it looks like Boeing is not very confident in uh, India's capacity to to pay for planes that don't work. They have received zero of the 190 planes they requested. That is probably for the best. Probably, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're just playing that doesn't work, that is constantly blowing up and crashing into things. Would you like some more? That's a good point. I didn't think about it that way. <laughs> Please, may I have some more? I was like, the injustice of not fulfilling particular orders. And it's like, well, less people are going to die, probably. So <laughs> not all heroes wear capes. No, sometimes they wear sweatpants. It's the end of my Boeing spiel. Thank you. Thank you. Very well Thank done. You. Good job. Do you guys want to talk about... Palestine? We can talk about Palestine. All right, so we're like on day either 102 or 103 of the genocide. And uh, Israel is not having a good time. I mean, neither neither is Palestine. <laughs> well, I mean, they were they weren't having a good time for the past seventy five years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Israel is suddenly not having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, relative correct. to like the the norm. Yeah. They're like, oh shit. Look at this. It's a new thing for Israel. Yeah. yeah. Oh, shit. We actually have consequences. Oh, shit. Our economy is actually collapsing. And our government is being forced to admit that they can't actually defeat Hezbollah or Hamas. I mean, they'll try anyways, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly what Netanyahu said today, he was like, yeah, we, we can't beat Hamas and it's going to take... It's probably going to take us at least a couple more years which is really funny because he's probably not going to have that long. Oh, yeah. The Global South is already fucking fed up, dude. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have poisoned the well to the point that's irreversible. You're pissed at us, too, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, back in November, the U.S. Embassy in the Jordanian capital of Amman was actually set on fire. Yeah, good. Also, they burned a McDonald's to the ground that was, like, across <laughs> the street. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Okay. When I saw that, I just had like a mini flashback to the time that me and Jesse were like watching, I think it was like Unicorn Riot was like live streaming people like burning down like a Wendy's in Minneapolis. And it was like, Wendy's has fallen. Oh, dude, <laughs> fuck. I remember watching that. <laughs> And we were, like, live texting, like, the entire night about it. <laughs> I, I, I remember that now. Holy shit. Yeah, dude. Yeah, this time it was a McDonald's in Jordan. Power to him, man. Fuck that yeah, processed that, that garbage. Was back in, like, mid-November. I say as I eat, like, a box of Domino's. Well, Domino's is run by, like, a super fanatic Catholic. So, like, I guess really more of a lateral move than anything. Yeah, I mean, this is, I don't want to get off topic because that's basically been our entire show so far. <laughs> yep. We're having a good time, folks. I was, I was surprised by that excerpt that you sent me from the Pope. Yeah, he's repeatedly said that what Israel is doing is terrorism. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. It's kind of wild that an institution is like reactionary to the Roman Catholic Church is to the left of basically every elected politician in America, save for like a handful. I just was not expecting to see explicitly Catholics and Marxists need to work together. 
I mean, he's been saying since pandemic began that like capitalism has failed. He's the, the dopest pope, as we were discussing. All, as we always call him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we digress. Israel's now basically surrounded militarily. They're being boxed in on like three different fronts. Oh, uh, wait a minute. No, one, two, three, technically four, technically five. It's like Yemen's technically another front. And apparently the Israeli troops had like a firefight with Egyptian troops on like the border with Egypt yesterday. Mm-hmm. Like half of their military is tied up in Lebanon, even though they're getting their ass kicked there. They're getting their ass kicked so badly in the north of Gaza that the Israeli army has retreated. And all but three divisions have pulled out of the north of Gaza because they have been beaten that badly. Oh, well, last episode, I'm correcting myself immediately. Last episode, Scott asked me why Israel is leaving north Gaza. And I said, because they have nothing left to do there. But no, uh, it's because they are losing that badly. Yeah. They don't actually have control of North Gaza. They claim to over and over again. And then, like, they do, like, a photo op. Oh, look at the thing we blew up. And then you find out, like, a week later, actually, that entire, like, brigade was liquidated by Hamas or, like, the DFLP or the PFLP, like, a week ago. Looking at pictures of North Gaza, it's hard to believe that a military presence, a local military presence, can even stay alive. Well, they've got the tunnels. (laughs) Oh, Oh, I forgot. (laughs) Palestinians have gotten really good at, like, ambush tactics. They'll ambush out of, like, a tunnel or whatever, fire, like, an RPG at basically point-blank range at a tank, knock it out, and then, like, duck back into cover. I've seen videos of, like, Palestinian soldiers. They have basically GoPros on their head, and they literally walk up to a tank, slap an explosive charge on the back of it, and then head back to cover in enough time before the thing explodes. Car salesman slaps roof of tank. <laughs> this baby can hold so many explosions. This baby That's like a regular a thing on my bitch. Twitter timeline now. It's just like <laughs> Palestinians like slapping charges onto tanks, running back to cover, and then boom. Apparently, they've discovered a fatal flaw in the main battle tank. The Israelis have the Merkava. It's supposed to have this thing called like a trophy system, which basically like it will fire a little like RPG to like intercept like a missile being fired at the tank but if something is being fired at it within like less than 50 yards or so it won't work the charges that the palestinians are using is what's known as like a two-stage projectile which is the first stage of the projectile explodes just enough to make a hole through the armor and then the second charge explodes inside the tank itself they're manufacturing these correct they're not they are manufacturing these in palestine yeah you saw the GDF uh, documentary about the IRA. It's basically their equivalent of the RPG that fired cookies. Hell yeah. Basically their take on it, but more advanced. They don't use, co- you know, use cookies <laughs> as use like cookies. the recoil counterweight. It's quite a bit more advanced than that. But like these uh, Yasin 105s, they're very effective. They use them at like close range and they get results. They've also been using a lot of IEDs, like handmade IEDs that they use in like ambushes. The Israelis just outmatched in every conceivable sense. They have like all of this advanced hardware and equipment, and they're being beaten by guys who are like dressed in the kind of clothes you would expect someone to be wearing when they go out to help their mom bring the groceries out of the car. 
in like Yemen's case, it's like, yeah, they're being beaten by guys who are like wearing sandals. Based. So at least 12 and a half soldiers have been classified as disabled by the Israeli army. Wait. <laughs> what the fuck is half a person? Yeah, what? At least 12 and a half thousand. Oh. 12,500. 12 and a half soldiers. <laughs> I was like, that, that sounds like a pretty small. I was kind of like, yeah, definitionally. <laughs> Twelve thousand five hundred soldiers have been classified as disabled. That's not even counting the soldiers who have like PTSD or like mental health disabilities. It's just mm-hmm. like the people who have been severely wounded to the point where they are no longer capable of fighting. A lot of these people have had to have limbs amputated. Thirty, forty percent of the the people they've classified as disabled are now amputees. That shit is like genuinely sad. It's pretty easy to lose any sense of like empathy or sympathy for an IDF soldier, but like at the end of their military career, they're probably gonna be fucking suicidal, especially like in retrospect. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be much harder to view everything through that veil of nationalism. Or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I, I'm, just... I'm not so sure because their entire society seems to be pretty bloodthirsty. There are like New York Times headlines with photo, file photos of Israelis like watching like Gaza being bombed as if as if it's like fireworks on the Fourth of July from like ten fifteen years ago. It's like barely <laughs> like been barely any time since it was like cool to be racist. It's still apparently cool to be racist against Arabs in America. So well, I mean, in America, yeah, that's not really a surprise. That's kind of what I'm using as the parallel. Israel and America have many parallels and i think in time the same way that many american war vets oh i I was just thinking like in the near term well i wasn't bitch (laughs) well yeah now now i see that (laughs) (laughs) so israel's like losing a lot of troops uh they've admitted to at least 520 dead like 190 of whom died after they invaded the gaza strip on the ground probably a lot higher than what they're willing to admit so not only are they losing militarily but like economically it is starting to cost them a lot of money it's starting to cost their benefactors i.e the united states States, europe Europe, specifically Germany, germany a lot of money shell today announced that they will stop sending ships through the red sea entirely their stock price tanks like the entire day pretty heavily is Shell British or is it... It's apparently British. I, for some reason, thought it was Dutch. It used to be Royal Dutch Shell. Yeah. So Shell, is that's a pretty big hit. Um, the Red Sea accounts for about 12% of uh, global shipping. And the daily amount of cargo that goes through the Red Sea on a normal day is valued between 3 and $9 billion. And Red Sea traffic is down like 40%. Uh, as most shipping companies have opted to go all the way around Africa, which adds about 3,728 additional miles that they have to travel, which is like two and a half weeks, three weeks of travel time. And for example, the cost of sending a shipping container from China to the European Union is up 248% over the past month from $1,148 for a uh, single 40-foot shipping container. So, like, that's becoming incredibly expensive. Overall, global shipping rates have gone up about 310% since November. 
It's also like really dangerous for ships at all right down there around. Yes, because like that's the point at which like the Atlantic Ocean meets the Indian Ocean. Yeah. The Europeans gave the Cape of Good Hope that name. It was like a very darkly ironic like euphemism because it was incredibly treacherous. So that's why they called it the Cape of Good Hope because it was like nobody's going to want to like sail out here if they actually know the truth. You're going to need some hope. Ha ha ha. Yeah, pretty much. So I always I always think of that. Fuck, it's too late. I was going to do this. Uh, uh, also, financially, rats. like this is why like we bombed, <laughs> we decided to bomb Yemen. The White House's official press statement listing their justification for going to war with Yemen is literally delays in product shipping times. It's a raw defense of capitalism. Itamar Ben Gavir isn't getting his prime packages fast enough. Do prime packages travel on boat? I, I don't know. I don't think they do. But that's neither here nor there. It's all right. Yeah, Israel's main port uh, that deals with like shipping traffic to and from the Red Sea, their shipping traffic is down like 85%. So like we bombed Yemen, which I think is just honestly the most insane thing. It's like, it's almost like the inertia of like empire of like, well, nobody's taking our threats seriously. So we, I guess we got to bomb them. You know, we've already been doing that for the last 10 years. This time it'll work. Yeah, it'll work. I saw a photo of, I want to say it was literally a million people gathered in a demonstration in Sana'a and they were chanting, we don't care, make it a world war. Which is reference to a Yemeni folk song that basically like mocks all of the people who have invaded them in the past century. Nice. I like that energy. Yeah, I think it's like super based. Yemeni culture is like the closest thing I can think of that actually has an analog to like Mandalorians out of Star Wars where like guns are like a part of their culture. Oh, wow. From a very early age, guns are basically a part of like the culture because it's a very rural country. And also they've been having to deal with invaders for like several decades. It's really insane in the sense of like, we're bombing a country that's actually doing a good thing. In fact, U.S. government announced today that it plans to put the Ansar Allah movement, which is commonly referred to as the Houthis in the West, which is, you know, the government in Yemen, they govern the territory in which 80% of the population lives. They control the capital of Yemen. They are the government. But... The U.S. government intends to put them back on the foreign terrorist organization list, which makes it illegal to uh, give any NGO kind of aid to Yemen. And this comes as the World Food Program, the U.N.'s World Food Program, already uh, announced that Yemen would be basically barred from getting any food aid from the U.N. because they were blockading Israel. Aren't they in the middle of a famine? Yes, a man-made famine that the United States created intentionally as a, like, starvation tactic. Oh, great. Fun. The bombing campaign wasn't working, so around, like, 2013, the U.S. Navy set up a blockade of Yemen to basically try to starve the population to death. Hasn't worked yet. And so we're trying this again because bombing them hasn't worked, and so we... So we're bombing them. Again. So we're bombing them. Yeah, it's the it's the Boeing method all over. Again. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think this is probably like the first time in my lifetime, at least, that the United States has picked a fight 
with a state that is stable, actively looking for a fight with us, incredibly disciplined, highly trained, like the average Yemeni foot soldier has five to ten years of combat experience. And Yemenis are insanely well armed. The U.S. prefers to prey on like either countries like Russia that aren't looking for a fight or countries that are like really weak, can't really defend themselves that well and aren't well armed. Like I I shared a photo that shows the range of Yemen's like missile capability. And there are about 44,500 U.S. troops that are stationed at military installations in range of Yemen's missiles. All right, dude, so you got to tell us, why the fuck was Mossad in northern Iraq? Because apparently that was a base that the Israelis were using to coordinate and carry out attacks against Iran. Were they off the grid somewhere so that they weren't monitored? No, it was concealed in a villa of a comprador, like, bourgeois collaborator who was, Uh, like, an oil magnate. Okay, that makes 100% more sense. I can't remember his name, but, like, this bourgeois collaborator, he was, like, an oil magnate who was basically, like, facilitating, like, the expropriation of Iraqi oil that was being sent to Israel. 40% of their oil comes from, like, Iraqi oil fields. It's basically stolen. So the Iranians blew up his house that was also kind of like uh, doubling as like a Mossad spy headquarters. And they fired a ballistic missile that traveled about 1,200 kilometers and completely reduced his house to rubble. There's almost no part of the structure that's still left standing. It's all basically just dust. So they killed him and they killed a couple other top-ranking Mossad people, apparently. And then... Iran also launched ballistic missile strikes against U.S. military troops in Syria who were, like, guarding a Conoco oil field because we decided that we were going to occupy this part of Syria to prevent Syria from accessing its own oil. Uh, And then they targeted a couple other U.S.-backed proxy forces in Syria, a couple more in Iraq, just absolutely clapped the U.S. And the U.S. decided not to respond to that because they didn't want more bloodshed. U.S. military bases in Iraq and Syria have already come under attack like 140, 150 times before this week. The Iraqi government is actually moving to kick the U.S. out of their country entirely. Yeah, what are we... What? (laughs) Why are we still there? Why are we in there? (laughs) Ostensibly, we're still there to, like, fight ISIS, even though the reason that... my freedoms get over there. (laughs) And now we're just kind of there to, like... Be like a deterrent, I guess. I don't know. So, on top of the fact that Israel's proxies are getting beaten up, this specific strike, Iran was retaliating for like the terrorist attack Israel did at the beginning of this month. That was the bombing at the memorial for Qasem Soleimani. Oh yeah, that's gone under the radar, but that was one of the most deadly terrorist attacks, like in Iranian recent history. Yeah, killed 200 people. And injured a shitload of people. Yeah. So I think all things considered, the Israelis kind of got off easy. Yeah. (laughs) And economically, they're being strangled because the war is costing Israel $270 million a day. A couple hundred thousand settlers in the north of Israel evacuated because of the ongoing fighting between Israel and Hezbollah defending Lebanon. 
And I guess a bunch of these settlers don't feel safe. They don't feel like the Israeli military is capable of protecting them from Hezbollah. And so the evacuation of all of these settlers is costing Israel an additional $158 million every week. So Israel has been forced to, uh, they came out with a new budget today. New budget shots. They're having a hard time funding the war. Unlike the U.S., they can't just print endless money. So they've increased spending by about like $18.7 billion. Like, put in perspective, at the end of 2022, the Israeli government was running like a $2 billion surplus. Right now, they're running a deficit of about $20.7 billion. They had to make a bunch of budget cuts. Like, at this point, the Israeli deficit as a percentage of their GDP is now like over 6.5%. And they borrowed like $7.5 billion in loans. Oh, yeah. It's it's really easy to forget that Israel, even though they are an aggressor state that is part of the imperial core, like they still are subservient to the United States in terms of their economic stability as of right now. Yeah. In order to be able to afford to increase military spending by like $19 billion, they had to make enough cuts that resulted in the closure of 10 Oof. different government ministries. So not only do they have to close 10 different government ministries, they're now running a nearly $21 billion deficit. The war has already cost them $18 billion. And the Israeli Central Bank, the Bank of Israel, is projecting that by the end of this year alone, it will cost them an additional $20 billion, which at that point would be equivalent to half of the government's operating budget for the year. And on top of that... Their GDP has already shrunk by 2% last three months. It's projected to shrink by another 1.5% in the next six months. Uh, at this point, there are 260,000 unemployed Israelis. 142,500 of those unemployed people are on unpaid leave. The Israeli labor force is missing about 20% of its workforce because 20% of the working age population in Israel is either been conscripted and is currently serving, dead, disabled, fled the country, or unemployed. Again, that is like a genuine tragedy that didn't need to happen. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I think at this point, what is most likely going to eventually happen is it ends because Israel's economies collapse to the point where like, we need to send people back to work. Yeah, I mean... Ukraine's kind of in a similar position. But, like, Ukraine's, like, in a much worse position because, like, all Israel has to do to make this stop is just, like... Stop murdering Palestinians. Yeah, that's true. That That's really all they have to do to make this stop. Like, this could stop tomorrow if they were, like, okay, fine. I mean, you can, you can say the same thing about Ukraine. Like, we talked about it. I don't know. We probably got cut out. Listener. <laughs> probably got cut out. What, should be, like, we surrender? Yeah, like, like who really believes that they're going to get enough funding to not just, like, maintain... I don't think it's going to happen. They're on borrowed time because, like, they have been exclusively reliant on, like, foreign military equipment since October 2022 when they basically threw everything they had into their initial counterattack and it didn't really work, but they burned through, like, all of their equipment. Jesus Christ, dude. So they've been on borrowed time since, like, the fall of 2022. All of this carnage is unnecessary. 
Yeah, it's just like rage-inducing to see the same pattern repeated yeah, it is. It is. in different puppet states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's exhausting. <laughs> Should we change the subject? Um, yeah, I, we can talk about... This is where... 